0: This is Revive Chicago. Listen and be changed. All right. So, on for the message. Everybody ready? Everybody awake? (laughs) One person's awake? (laughs) Well, I can work with that. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The book of Acts chapter 1 and we're going to start in verse 1 and we're just going to read this whole section and then I'm going to go back through and we're going to pick it apart a little bit and talk about some of the concepts here. So Acts chapter 1 verse 1 says this, in my former book Theophilus I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the dates or times the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right, now we get to unpack it. So there's quite a lot here, but um, I want you to know, and it's helpful to know that the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Luke was a doctor during this era and was a very, very smart man. And the way that he wrote, so he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and they're kind of a part one, part two series, okay? So the book of, the, what we call the Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus. And then the book of Acts is often called Acts of the Apostles, but it's actually not Acts of the Apostles. It's Acts of the Holy Spirit. That would be a better way to think of it. Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes we think like, oh, well, the apostles did that. and You only get to do that if you're an apostle. When, in fact, the stuff in the book of Acts is for all who are called. For all who are disciples. For all who believe. Okay? We all get to do this. This isn't just, oh, they were apostles. They were the twelve. They were special God used them in a special way, but he's not going to use the little me. So um, this book, so he said, like, and this phrase is kind of funny. He's like, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about, right? And it almost sounds like the first book was the book of Theophilus. But the first book that he's talking about is actually what we call the Gospel of Luke, okay? And scholars kind of debate, like, who this Theophilus guy was. Some think that it's somebody that Luke was writing to to try and convince of the gospel and to convince who Jesus was. Um, Another scholar I read as I was preparing for this message actually said that Theophilus was likely the patron or the guy who commissioned the work to be done, like paid for it and said, all right, Luke, I want you to take this time, set aside uh, some scrolls, write out your thoughts, interview the people you need to interview. Because what's really cool about Luke, like if you go back and read the book of Luke and you read Acts, you can tell Luke sat down and interviewed people. Like, one of the things it says about Mary in the Gospel of Luke is it says, and Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. Well, how did Luke know that? Because Luke sat down and talked to her and asked her questions. And he got to ask her about the birth of Jesus and some of the things that happened in the trip to Egypt. And what's cool, like, we're not going to get into this today, but a few verses later when the story goes on and tells how all of the uh, disciples were together in the upper room, We kind of think of it like we're picturing Peter, James, John, and Andrew up in the room. But it says that there were 120 people present. So not just the 12 were filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess who one of them Luke names? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Like, we kind of have this, like, I don't know, religious idea of who Mary was. Because we've grown up with all these pictures and all these icons. And she's got, like, a nice little halo around her head and this nice blue like hair thing you know covering her hair and she's holding the baby Jesus and like Jesus never grows up and she's perpetually holding him you know like in our mind that's how Mary is and that's what she did right because we all kind of we've been around enough Catholics to to know like this is the this is the image and literally like in the middle ages thousands of paintings of Mary and Jesus like thousands of them And so we kind of all have that picture in our mind, but we don't have the picture is Mary, the mother of Jesus, was present in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. She had the tongues of fire and she got filled with the Holy Spirit right beside Peter, which is just cool, but that's not my sermon today. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So Theophilus could have been the guy that maybe paid for the work to be commissioned and and written. And so Luke is opening it up and saying, like, here's the work, Theophilus. This is what I told you I was going to write. This is what you wanted all put together. So he's telling Theophilus and kind of thanking him here in this opening. And he says, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So right there, like, right there, he's kind of splitting off part one and part two. So the gospel of Luke tells about everything that Jesus did and taught. And now part two, he's kind of like, this is the middle moment. Like the pivotal moment is Jesus goes up to heaven, which we just read, right? And then now what do his followers do? What do his disciples do? And um, what else did I want to say on that? Oh, this was cool too. So Luke is actually one of the longer, like, Luke is one of the longer books in the New Testament and Acts is also one of the longer books in the New Testament. And so when you put his writings together, the Luke-Acts pieces, he's actually, he's written more of the entire New Testament than anybody else. And he's actually written the longest book in the Bible because even like Jeremiah and Isaiah, which are really long books, if you put Acts and Luke together... That's long. It's longer than Jeremiah or Isaiah. So the lo- like the guy who wrote the most in volume in the Bible. Like we, if we count all of Paul's letters, we're like, well, Paul wrote 13 books of the Bible, right? But like, he wrote tiny little ones. <laughs> like Luke wrote a huge thing. And and what's cool is they actually probably had standard sizes for scrolls for how they would have had to roll up and store. And so most scholars actually think that Mark. Like, Mark was written on, like, the half-size scroll. Matthew was written on the three-quarter-size scroll. And then Luke used two volumes. He used one and two and filled the entire 35-foot scroll, which is crazy, right? So this, like, we're used to books like this getting passed around. But when this was originally written, it was written in Greek, and it was written on a scroll that if you unraveled it, it would be 35 feet long. (laughs) Isn't that cool? Okay. Okay. Just, again, little anecdotes that I think are interesting. I don't know if you think they're interesting, but I think they're interesting. And so so Jesus gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. In verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Some of these convincing proofs are, again, they're over in the Gospel of Luke. So you have to go read the end of the story in the book of Luke to find what some of these convincing proofs are, right? But what Luke wants us to know, and what I think is really cool, is like, again, there's convincing proofs. It takes a little bit of evidence to say, hey, this guy got killed, and then he came back to life. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And these are people that watched him die. They're like, am I seeing a ghost? But a ghost ghost doesn't show up day after day for 40 days. So there's something significant about Jesus sticking around for 40 days and revealing himself to his disciples over and over and over again. And it says that he spoke to them during that period of 40 days about the kingdom of God. Okay? So... He, like, we think he talked to them about the kingdom of God before he died, but he also talked to them about the kingdom of God after he died. And my guess is, like, you got Matthew sitting there, Peter sitting there, James, John. Like, they're sitting there after Jesus raised from the dead, and now things are starting to kind of click and make sense. Like, Jesus is talking to them again about the kingdom, and they're like, okay, I remember this story. I remember that parable. And Jesus is reiterating some of the things that they're like, have forgotten out of sheer shock, right? Because their their best friend, their follower, the guy they follow, their rabbi, just got murdered brutally. And there's kind of this shock period, right? Like I can only imagine. And, And even today, like you hear about people that are going through a tough time. Somebody has, somebody close to them has died. And then you're talking to them and it's like three days later and they're like, I still see them. I still feel them in the room. You're like, okay, that's weird. But it's actually kind of normal for someone to, who's facing deep grief to struggle with that and to feel like they still sense that person around or they turn the corner and they think they're there or whatever. And so there's a lot of people that go back and they're they're, they're they're trying, well, there's no way that Jesus was really, like these guys were just so grief-stricken or whatever. But like Jesus showed up for a period of 40 days. This wasn't like for the week after he died. This was for 40 full days after he died. The 40 days is significant. And then um, he's teaching them again and reminding them again about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And I like this too, because it says, while he was what? Eating with them. Ghosts don't eat food, people. Okay? Ghosts don't eat food. Even back then, they knew this. (laughs) right? Jesus wasn't some hologram. Jesus wasn't just the appearance of their grief-stricken natures. Jesus sat and ate with them. And what's interesting is like, you know how we have little idioms and sayings, you know, like uh, you you find out somebody's going to go on a Broadway show and you're like, oh, go break a leg. Or you tell somebody like, oh, you're the bad apple. Or you tell, like I tell my wife, like you're the apple of my eye. Or like we have these different sayings. Well, what's funny about this is the way that Luke wrote this in the Greek, is there was a saying. So it says we translate it in order to make it make sense. While he was eating with them, but it actually says if you re- translate it just literally, it says he was taking salt with them. That was like that was the Hebrew phrase of the day, like to take salt together, and eat together, and fellowship together. It's not like they were sitting there just like eating cubes of salt or something, <laughs> right? Like so, scholars had to go back and figure out like what does that phrase mean because. Someday, a thousand years from now, scholars are going to have to figure out what we're talking about when we said certain phrases. Like, a bad apple spoils the whole bunch. They're like, What are these people talking about? <laughs> right? We have little phrases in our day, things that we say all the time, and um, they did in their day as well. And so taking salt together specifically meant breaking bread together or eating together. And I, I just thought that was cool. Like, Jesus was eating Um, and feeling a little salty after he was crucified. Okay, so he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So again, he's reminding them of something that he said before he died. And this is like, this is the thing I want you to know. Like, I'm about to leave. This is the thing I want you to know. So, like as a dad, I think of this kind of often when I'm teaching my girls something, right? Like I tell them, especially at the age that they're at, six, four, and three, like I have to repeat myself a lot. And so I tell them things, I tell remind them of things. And then if Wit and I are gonna go somewhere and we're leaving and there's a babysitter, what do we do? Right before we leave, we remind them <laughs> of the things that we expect. We remind them of the things we want them to remember while we're gone. And so Jesus is in that same position. Like, he knows that after after a while, when he's gone, they're going to forget, their memory's going to fade a little bit, or they're going to want to go back to their old ways. And he wants to ensure Peter's not going to go back to fishing. So he gives them a, and he says, here's my command. I'm telling you this. And we're like, I thought Jesus wasn't legalistic. It's like Jesus was commanding them. He was telling them something that he really wanted them to remember, Okay, so he's been hanging out with them for 40 days. He's been breaking bread and taking salt together. And he says this, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, Do not leave Jerusalem until this happens. And the story goes on, like, just to fill you in before I keep moving through the text, when because this, this next part I'm about to tell you isn't part of my message, but I think it's just helpful. So the story goes on, Acts chapter 2, and they all get filled, and we call it the day of Pentecost, okay? But there was a period of 10 days. So Jesus Jesus ascends into heaven, like we read, and then there's a period of 10 days where they meet together in Jerusalem every day for 10 days. Jesus showed, it says that Jesus appeared to 500 people, revealed himself to 500 people. How many people were in the upper room? Anybody know? 120. That's, that's quite a bit of attrition there. 500 down to 120. Think about that. Can you imagine being the 121st guy that was like, oh, I have to go pee, right? Like, like, right when the moment came, and he's like, or, or, or the 122nd guy that, like, had to go take care of his camel or something, right? Like, there's this moment of unity that God is designed, and he's set apart, and he's, like, it takes 10 days, right? Like, so maybe the first day, like, 500 people are in the room, and the next day, 480, and the next day, 400, you know what I mean? Like, He commanded them. He said, don't leave Jerusalem until you get filled with the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't really say what's going to happen. And he just says, in a few days. And remember what happened with Moses on the mountain? He's like, he goes up on the mountain. They're like, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. Like he led us out of Egypt. And then where'd he go? Like, we just know he went up on that mountain and he's been gone for a few days now, right? And you notice, remember how many days he was gone? 40 days, right? A lot of times we get stuck In the waiting, we get caught up in the waiting, and we think we've got something better to do. We do not like to wait, right? When God gives us a command, we do not like waiting. And so the disciples and the 120 waited together. The 120 are the ones that actually waited faithfully. They followed what Jesus said. Jesus said, wait for me in Jerusalem until. He doesn't say for 10 days. They're like, okay, we can make it. Like He doesn't give them any. He just says until this happens. They didn't know when it was going to happen. And that's the part we struggle with, right? Like some of us have promises, some of us are believing for things, and we're waiting for God, and it feels like, okay, well, when is this going to happen? And for the disciples, it was only 10 days, but there were, there's promises in here. Like Abraham, how long did Abraham wait? Forever. Yeah, Abraham waited for 25 years. He received the promise of Isaac when he was 75 and did not get the promise of Isaac until he was 100. That's a long time to wait for your promise. Like, Wow, no wonder we call him such a man of faith, right? Like, Abraham, wow. And then you've got, like, um, the story of Daniel. Daniel was exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then he read about a prophecy that Jeremiah had given that said that the exile was going to last for 70 years. Most scholars believe that Daniel actually returned back to Jerusalem in his 90s. 70 years waiting for the promise. The book of Hebrews tells us that many died while waiting for the promise, but did not give up their faith. So anyway, Jesus commands them, so this is important. And part of this message today is to talk about the idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit because Jesus specifically makes a distinction here between the baptism of John and baptism in the Holy Spirit. To me, it sounds, it's very distinct. It sounds like a second baptism. And he doesn't say that, well, Peter, you're not saved until you get baptized in the hill. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you're not saved. This isn't a salvation issue. He calls it a gift. He says, wait for the gift my father promised. But he commands them to wait for that gift. I think a lot of times in Christianity, we struggle in our walk with God because we, we don't know how to wait And because we don't value the promise of the Holy Spirit, we don't value the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so we're all about baptism in water, but that's kind of this like one-time event. And it represents salvation. But then when it comes to baptism in the Holy Spirit, you just don't really hear Christians talking about it that often. What is baptism in the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And we find out later what that looked like and it says tongues of fire came on them and a mighty rushing wind and then Peter suddenly turns into a different person and he goes from being this like crude fisherman to being a well-spoken guy speaking to a crowd of 3,000 without fear. Okay, that's a pretty big transformation, right? So obviously one of the biggest things that Jesus wants them to know is about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He wants to affirm in them that desire for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he's telling them it is the gift, it is a gift from the Father. It's not a gift, like, he's going to, Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit, but the gift is from the Father. And then notice what they say, verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I look at this, and like to me, this is kind of flabbergasting. Like, okay, he just promised you the Holy Spirit, and you're like, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? (laughs) Like, they have this idea in mind of what the Messiah is supposed to do. It's like, okay, you didn't do this before you died. We thought you were going to do this before you died. But now that you're back again and you're alive again, is this the point where you restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this the point where you overthrow Rome? Because that's what we really want. We want Rome off our backs. We want to just, we want to be a free people. We want to be the Jewish state that we're called to be. That's, that's what we want. So they're questioning Jesus are like, okay, now you've been alive for 40 days again. We're happy to see you. Is this the part where we just kill the Romans? Like, What's happening here? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. You're like, are you a politician? Because you didn't answer my question. Right? Like, that's kind of how it feels here. And let's be honest. Like, Jesus did not answer their question here. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set. And there's a lot going on in our world right now. There's talk of war. We're on the brink of World War III and everything that's going on with Israel and fulfilled prophecy. And you're probably going to see, like if you're on Facebook or Instagram and you follow different preachers and ministries, like you're going to hear talk, I've already started to see it, Of people saying, the Lord's coming soon. This is a sign. Everything going on in Israel is a sign. Jesus is returning soon. This is the fulfillment of XYZ prophecy that they pulled out of context for the eighth time. It's like, that's what you said last time about Israel in 2015. And that's what you said about Israel back in 2011. And that's what you said. And did you guys know that every single, to date, every single prophecy about when Jesus is going to return has been false? Every single one. And then we still, as Christians, we're doing the exact same thing. Jesus is like, I want to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're like, Are you going to restore Israel? Is this the end times? Are you coming back tomorrow? I heard this preacher say that because of the blood moons and the lunar eclipse and the solar eclipse and all, and we just start putting all of these pieces together and all of these prophecies together and we're making it say what we want it to say. And guess what? You're wrong. That preacher you heard, he's wrong. That prophetic lady that you heard, she's wrong. you're like, okay, well, when is the end? I'm like, I'm quoting to you Jesus. He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. I don't want you to get caught up in times and dates and seasons and solar eclipses. I want you to, what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have become a Christian. A Christian culture caught up in end times gaga. Worried about all of these things that Jesus didn't say to worry about and ignoring the main thing that he wanted us to know when he left. The last thing that Jesus is telling us before he leaves earth is this. And the disciples even then were like, is this when you're going to do it? And then as disciples, we've been doing the same thing ever since. Christians have been doing the same thing. And prophetic word after prophetic word after prophetic word about when Jesus is going to return takes things out of context, takes prophecies out of context, and ignores what Jesus says here. It is not for you to know the dates or the times. And we're like, but I I want to know. (laughs) I want to be ready. I got stuff I want to do first. Right? Like, we all have this idea in mind. It's like, how about, how about Jesus right when I'm on my deathbed and I've lived my life, then you come back. I don't, I just don't want to have to die. (laughs) I remember, uh, I remember growing up, that was, that was definitely my brother, my younger brother. He's like two or three years younger than me. And that was his prayer. It was like, Jesus, just let me live my life. And right before I'm about to die, I don't want to have to die. So right before I'm about to die, then you return. <laughs> like, that'd be nice. That'd be really nice. And like, not have to die. But Jesus says, God, God is the one with the authority on this, on the dates and times. So you don't get caught up in those things. Don't get caught up in predictions. Don't get caught up in wars and rumors of wars. Don't get got caught up in all of the quote-unquote signs. Because you're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong. You're called to what? To receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And guys, this is so much better. This is so much better than having some kind of mindset about like, okay, as long as I know it's in 28 days or... Right? Like, as long... Okay, 2030. Jesus is coming back in 2030. Like, we have this, these mindsets. And it's like, you... Like, where do you guys think all the climate change people got all their predictive ideas? Right? They got it from Christians. They're like, we're just going to throw out this date, and we're going to predict that the world is ending. We're going to scare people. But scaring people to Jesus is not the best way for evangelism. Right? Like, that's not how... Like, I... I know people that have gotten saved because they were afraid of hell. So don't like, obviously it can happen, right? They can get really and truly saved because they just wanting to avoid burning. But that was kind of funny, you know, like <laughs> it's a little morbid too, but you know, <laughs> it is the season of morbidity. Um, like this is such a funny season. Like I, you watch your, it's like, Kind of ironic, you just watch your neighbors cleaning cobwebs off the cobwebs before they go set them out? Okay. You guys are, I'm like, I'm trying to see if this, is this, this was funny to me, this was really funny, like watching your neighbor clean cobwebs off of cobwebs, It's just funny. Okay. Back to the text. I need to stay grounded in the word. Okay. So, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power for what? Power to be witnesses. You are a witness of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not your own witness, right? And you're not called to sit. You're like, unfortunately, there's quite a bit of time separating me and Luke. I don't have access to all the same proofs, right? I didn't get to walk around with Jesus for 40 days. So the witness in me, the witness in you, is the power of the Holy Spirit, That's the distinction. And that's the promise of the Father. And we want to know when the kingdom's going to end. Is America on the brink? Is Russia going to attack? What about China? What about... And we're we're worried about all of these things. And people are stirred up about all of these things. And I'm not trying to tell you that you need to go and correct all of these people. Okay, this is a sermon to kind of correct our body a little bit and kind of pull us in together and get us on the same page with regard to end times. Like, this is not a season where you need to get caught up and afraid. This is not a season where you start getting into political fights with people and arguing about Hamas and Palestine and all of the stuff going on and Israel and who's right and who's wrong. You're called to be a witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the word says. That's what Jesus wants. That's his last command to us before he leaves. It's powerful. And it's redirecting. It's correcting. And Luke is telling us this on purpose because he knows people are going to get distracted. People want to get, we want to get caught up in the end time. We want to like, there's this, there's whatever it is, whatever mechanism in our brain, we're like, I just want to know. I just want to know. And it kind of drives us. But it's, what Jesus is telling us here is that is futile. And if you get caught up trying to know times and dates and seasons, you're going to be distracted from the thing I want you to do. The thing I want you to do is be my witnesses. Tell other people about me. Live your life in such a way that other people will know who I am. And you don't have to do it by your own strength. You don't have to conjure it up. You don't have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You get to do it by the power of what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you that ability to be a witness, to speak when it's uncomfortable, to share the love of Jesus when you don't know what's going to happen. And you have to fight it. You have to think it through. You have to you have to realize your own propensity to desire to know the times, the dates, the seasons and go, pull it back and be like, no, I'm not going to get caught up in that. I'm not going to build out my end times chart. It's wrong. Your chart is wrong. The only chart you need is the one that says wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and when you receive that power go be a witness. Go tell other people about Jesus. Tell them what you've done what he's done in your life. Tell them how he's changed you. And then just as he's saying it says after he says this verse 9 He's taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid them from hid him from their sight. What does this remind you of? Elijah? Right? Every good Jewish person is sitting there thinking about Elijah. Like, oh, Elijah got caught up in a whirlwind. Like, what just happened here? Right? And the, the cloud receives him out of their sight. And they're like, can, can you imagine this group of, I don't know, 500 people, like it says he revealed himself to 500 people. So I'm just imagining like maybe there's a little crowd and they're all gathered on this mountain. He's like ready to say goodbye, but he doesn't say goodbye. He says, you will be my witnesses. And I'm, I just, I think about this moment. It's like, I'm Peter. I'm just like, okay, this isn't that surprising. Like you're just watching Jesus kind of float up and like get caught up in this cloud. And you're like, yeah, I'm kind of used to this now. (laughs) Like he's leaving again. Right, I watched him die. Now he's going up in the clouds. I'm watching my Elijah leave. And what's the last thing he said? That's the thing he wants us to know. That's the thing he wants to remind us of, what the kingdom of God is like. And we're so, we get so caught up in times and dates and seasons and building our charts and having everything organized. And Jesus has one thing he wants to say you will receive power. And if you don't have that power, if you haven't experienced that power, perhaps it's time we prayed for it. Perhaps it's time we asked God for it. Perhaps we've moved too quickly and skipped that part of our Christian faith. And we've ignored the part where we get power. And it's not... It's not the power, you know, the line like, um, "Power corrupts, absolutely, and absolute power corrupts," or something like I forget the the actual line. Like this isn't the this isn't the bad kind of power. This isn't a corrupting power. This isn't a I'm going to be the next pope and lord it over people power. This is power from the Holy Spirit to tell other people about Jesus, to witness to the work, the transformation. The love of God, miracles, signs, wonders, healings, exorcisms, all of that kind of things. That are, those are the kind of things that Jesus did in his ministry. And then the whole book of Acts spends time telling us, okay, this is the things Jesus did. Now here's the things his followers did. They do exactly what he did. That's our job. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it by power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is caught up in the clouds, out of their sight. In verse ten, it says they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. I would be too. Right? Like this dude just disappeared before your eyes, and you just you're like I just ate with this guy. Is he a is he a ghost? Is he are my eyes tricking me? What's happening here? And it says they're they're looking up intently into the sky, watching him go. And then two dudes dressed in white stand beside them. And it doesn't call them angels. It just says two men appeared in white robes. He's like, where did you come from, <laughs> right? Like, he's like, you didn't fly in here or something. He's like, you just appeared. Who are these guys? Right? And nobody knows who they are. It doesn't, they don't have names. It doesn't say that it was Gabriel and Michael or anything. It just says the two men standing in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So this is our blessed hope. Like, this is, this is what Christians look forward to. We are going to see a returning Christ. We are going to see a returning Messiah. But what did Jesus want us to know? Don't worry about when it happens. Until I come back, you should be busy being witnesses with power. You should be full of the Holy Spirit. You should be concentrating on receiving that gift, not standing here looking up at the sky. But that's what a lot of Christians have become. They've just become these bespeckled people, spectators, waiting. All right, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? I'm going to study the weird verses in the book of Ezekiel and Daniel and mix them together with Revelation, and I'm going to figure out when you're coming back. And we're just proverbially standing there looking at the sky, waiting for him to come back instead of going and doing what he commissioned us to do. Jesus gave us a job to do. He gave us the Holy Spirit to be transformed and changed and become witnesses. And then we just get caught up when everybody else, along with everybody else, all the other Christians, looking up at the sky, like, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? We've been distracted by the very thing he warned us not to be distracted by. Now, don't get me wrong. I like talking about end times. If like someday I'm probably going to do a teaching on like an in-depth teaching on end times, we can have those conversations. But this should not be your primary focus. The Christian call is not to be looking at the sky. The Christian call is to be going out as witnesses. It's called the Great Commission. And and these men say, this same Jesus who's been taken from you will come back. So is he coming back? Absolutely, he's coming back. Jesus is going to return. This is the Christian's blessed hope. Jesus will return. But don't get caught up waiting for it. Don't sit around waiting for it. Don't just get caught up looking at the sky or staring at charts. Actually go do what he said he wants you to do in the meantime. And is God going to restore Israel? What about Israel? What about all the stuff going on? What about all the struggle? And there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of theology. There's a lot of Christians that believe that Israel has been replaced. And that the Israel that we see is not the Israel of God. And they don't have any promises left. They believe that the church replaced Israel. So the church is the new Israel. And I want to be clear on this too. And I I don't want to get caught up in all of it and, and, and teach about replacement theology right now. But I think it's sufficient to say, if God was done with Israel, why does it tell me right here that he's going to return to the Mount of Olives? If God's done with Israel why is that the spot he's going to return in the same way? I think that's important to know, right? And if God's done with Israel, why is that the spot? Why does the geographical location matter? Because it says they're standing on the Mount of Olives. Right? Christianity believes that he's going to split the eastern sky and land right there on the Mount of Olives. That's the spot he's returning. And it's taught partly because of this verse and one or two other verses. So is Jesus returning? Yes, he's returning. Where is he returning? To Israel. That's where it starts. So if God's done with Israel, if Israel's been replaced, why is he returning there? I think that's a good question. And so don't get distracted by all the stuff and people saying that Israel's been replaced. Don't get distracted by all the Christians that are saying God's going to do something great in Israel and all the Jews need to be saved. Like I think you can miss both, both ways drastically. Because we tend to paint things in very, uh, we we want things in neat and tidy little rows. And we want to say, Israel is 100% good and all right, and God's favor is on them, and God's protecting them. But you guys know, like, the Jews mess things up in the Bible. Like, that's what we read about. Israel wasn't always perfect. God corrected them. Why would it be any different today? Right? So, what's going on? We don't, know, we don't know at this stage whether it's God's correction, God's judgment, or God's provision. We don't know what's going on yet. What's our job? To get caught up and like, all right, maybe now's the time that the kingdom's returning to Israel. Maybe now Israel gets restored. Nope. Nope, you're missing the boat. You're getting caught up in something that Jesus specifically said, don't worry about. So don't get distracted by the arguments over Israel. Don't get distracted about the arguments over Hamas and Palestine. Don't get distracted about predictions of World War III and Jesus is going to return. Don't get caught up in those things. What's your job? Your job is to be a witness. Your job is to be full of the Holy Spirit. Because when you're full of the Holy Spirit, God gives you words. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're empowered to witness. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're not distracted by end-time stuff. See what I'm saying? This is really, really important that we as a church have a cohesive idea of what the Bible teaches on this. And that we're not caught chasing fairy tales and fantasies. That we stand and we pray for Israel. We pray for peace in the Middle East. We pray for the innocent lives. Right? You can pray those things because that's what we're that's how we're witnessing, right? Like our job as a witness empowered by the Holy Spirit, what are you called to do? To love. So, definitely pray those things. But you're going to see as you read the stories and you hear the news and all the stuff, you're going to see a lot of predictions. You're going to see a lot of time a lot of people caught up in end times fervor. And it's a new era of that. And what do we need to pray? Who do we need to be? We need to be witnesses. We need to be full of the love of Jesus. I hope this message makes sense because I've covered a lot of topics here. And I believe it's important that we understand who Jesus was and what he did on the earth. And we don't make him into a Messiah in our image. Jesus likes what I like. Jesus loves who I love. Jesus hates the bad people I hate. It's usually not that easy. It's usually not that simple. Jesus actually loves and died for the bad people too. And that's what transforms them. And as witnesses full of the power of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean... I mean, let's just be honest. It doesn't mean that you don't die. Like, what if this new era, this new global era is a season of persecution for Christians? Are you still going to follow him faithfully? Are you still going to stand up for truth? You're going to need the Holy Spirit for that, friends. And I'm talking like more than, oh, they're mad at me on Facebook and they unfriended me that's not persecution like there are people literally dying for their faith and evil is ramping up things are happening and instead of taking it as a sign of the end you need to take it as a sign that you need more Holy Spirit power Because if you're going to be a witness in the face of that, if you're going to be a witness in the face of brutality, if you're going to be a witness in the face of death, disease, and destruction, if you're going to be a witness in the face of war, you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You need that power in you and upon you. And we're not talking about, we're not just talking about salvation, guys. This isn't, this isn't a, like, I'm not saying, well, you're not saved unless you have the Holy Spirit. I'm saying, saved people get filled. Saved people get baptized. Jesus is the baptizer. And we've too often settled for the baptism of John and wanted just the water when Jesus actually wants us to have the Spirit. You're supposed to be born of water and the Spirit. That's the calling, of Christians. And that's why this word is so important. These are the final words of Jesus before he left earth. So would you stand with me today? Jesus. God, I pray that this message today cuts through the clutter, cuts through the arguments, and cuts up the predictions and end time charts. God, that you would refocus us as a body, that you would refocus Revive Chicago Church for our call to be spirit led witnesses. To seek that out, to pursue, to pursue what that means, to pursue what that looks like in our lives, to make sure that we are consistently telling other people about Jesus, that we're consistently walking in love and proclaiming the peace of God, because that's our call as witnesses. That's who you desire us to be. That's who you reminded us to be. That's who you commissioned us right before you left earth. You commissioned us, God, and we want to do it. We want to step up to the plate. Help us not to be lazy followers who don't do what you ask. Help us not to be impatient. Jesus, but to spend that time seeking you, to spend 10 days if necessary, to spend 25 years if necessary, to wait 70 years for the promise, whatever it takes, God, to stand faithful. No matter how much life we have left, to stand faithful. To seek your face. To seek. The baptism in the Holy Spirit that enables us to be witnesses, Father God. Would you pray after me? Say, Jesus, Jesus, I love you. My life is yours. Everything I have is yours. Save me again. Rescue me again. Transform my mind, transform how I see the world, so that I can be a witness for you. Baptize me with the Spirit and with power to be your witness, full of love, full of joy, and full of patience. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen thank you everybody if you'd like prayer the altar is open I'd love to just stand and agree with you and we can pray about any topic in this message except the end time charts otherwise you have a wonderful Sunday and a good week thank you everybody thank you for listening today Now it's time to put your faith into action by applying this word to your life. If you'd like help taking your next steps with Jesus, contact us at revivechicago.church.